Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Harvest. If you are newer here, we are glad you're with us this morning. Or if you're joining on the live stream, thanks for joining us um, from home this morning as well. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor um, here at Harvest. And we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you've been tracking with us, you may notice that the passage that we're in this morning looks like we skipped part of the Sermon on the Mount. But that is due to last week we had snowpocalypse, and it actually happened. Um, so last week we, uh, we didn't have church, and the section that Greg was going to cover last week was on um, divorce and oaths. And as, uh, as Greg and I talked and the staff talked, it just made more sense um, for him to to cover that content next week. Um, and thankfully, he didn't have me cover that content this week. But just ultimately, seems like a good section for our, our lead pastor to shepherd us in what Jesus is saying about divorce and about oaths there. So we will get back to it. We're not skipping it. Um, and hopefully this morning, where, where the passage that we're in is very connected still to the previous passage, it will give us a, a, a good view or a broader view of, of what Jesus is talking about as we go into that section next week as well. Um, the section that we're in of the Sermon on the, on the Mount is where Jesus gives six illustrations um, of you have heard it was said, where here he is exposing the, the Israelites, the religious leaders, wrong ideas about God's law. He's exposing the upside down kingdom and is pointing them to how his kingdom actually works, how the kingdom of God is supposed to be. Uh, Jesus is saying to his people through all six of these illustrations, you have misunderstood the meaning, the intent, and the heart behind these laws. As we read earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 and, and 19, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. So Jesus in no way is getting rid of God's law, but he is the fulfillment of what the law always intended. As the one who's able to fulfill the law, to fulfill the Torah, to fulfill the story that God has given us, um, he knows the true meaning, the true intent, and the true heart of the law. Our truth statement this morning is, as Jesus teaches on whole person righteousness, he deepens and expands our view on what it means to be merciful and loving kingdom people. So would you pray with me this morning that we would catch Jesus's vision for what it means to be kingdom people and that our God would change our hearts so that we might be more merciful and loving like our Father is. God, we need your words of life. We need your truth and your truth alone, Lord. And as we open your word, as we look into what you have said is good in your kingdom, what it means to live out your kingdom ways, Lord, we recognize that you want whole person righteousness for us. Not just for our actions to be changed, but for hearts as Sherry said, that are devoted to you. Would you help us, Lord? Would, you, would, we, would we allow you to do the hard work of our hearts being exposed before you and you changing our hearts? And would our actions follow? Would you help us to put into practice your teachings? Would you help me, Lord? 
I need you desperately, God, for anything that I say to be good, for anything I say to be beneficial. Would you help me to cling to you? Would I be a blessing to my brothers and sisters this morning? And, and we look to you, God, the only one who can save. In your name, amen. So let's look at our passage this morning. Matthew 5, this is the first half of it. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. I'm in the NIV um, this morning. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So in, in both of our passages this morning, or both of the illustrations and all the illustrations that Jesus has covered in this section before, he is referencing some part of God's law um, from the Old Testament. And this law in particular, this eye for eye section, it's actually in the Old Testament in multiple places. But let's look at what um, the law says in Leviticus 24, 1920, what Jesus is referencing here. Leviticus 24, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for Now remember, Jesus has come to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. And as I met with my friend and was talking about this passage, he asked me a really good question that I want to ask you this morning. Is this law that we see here in Leviticus, is this merciful? Because I think at least knowing me, maybe knowing some of you as well, we might look at this and go, that does not look like mercy to me. Because we see that there's retaliation there, that there's, if an eye is taken or if a fracture happens, a, a tooth is knocked out, that that same thing can be done to the other person. It almost could sound like a revenge narrative. But the more time that I've talked with others and I've looked into scripture and I've listened to others preach on this, this law truly is merciful from God. But how? Let's look at it. So if, this, if a grievance is brought before the community in God's people, if someone was to take out someone's eye, the community would only allow them to do the exact same thing that was done to them. They could not take justice into their own hands and do to that person whatever they wanted, potentially increasing the injustice that happened, even taking their own life. I don't know about you, but when someone hits me with a zinger, I don't want to just do the same level of like roasting to them. I want it to be even more than what they did to me so they never try it again. Same thing with pranks, right? Like in my flesh, that is what I want to do. I want to increase it and raise the stakes. And so the law wasn't allowing that. It was saying this is as far as you can go. But not only that, because I think that is a sample of the mercy that God is setting out here. Also, people that were tempted to do evil, to go against God's law, to go against what God says is good, knew there was going to be a price. If I do this, if I injure someone else, there will be a price and it will come back on me. God's staving off destruction from his people because they knew a price was coming for them. So hopefully the person would choose mercy instead of violence. The law sometimes to us uh, kind of just sounds like one big we will get along shirt. I don't know if you've seen these pictures before. 
um, right? That God is just trying to, to keep people at peace with one another. That we're just going to make sure that our people get along here. But that is not the goal or the intent of the law. While God does love peace and wants us to live peacefully with others in his creation, he ultimately is the God that wants to change our hearts so that we remember the God who saved us and rescued us for his people then, the God who brought them out of slavery, brought them into freedom. He wanted his people to have hearts that resembled their God. The law is not just this, right? To, stave, to simply just stave off bad things. But instead, it's to be made new. To see the story that we actually belong to. All right, you can take that down. This is what Jesus is showing them here. That ultimately, they have misunderstood what the law intended. They've done to the, something to the law that God never intended for it. The person that follows this law to the T and goes, oh, you hurt me, I get to get revenge? That is not what God said was good. Our default, default as people is not to be merciful. In our flesh, our default is not to be merciful. And maybe we've seen that in the last couple years more than we ever have before that each of us have someone in our lives where we probably need the we will get along shirt. But instead, we choose to not show mercy, but to retaliate, to want to get them back the same or even worse than how they got us. Jesus has spoken in Matthew 5.20, told the people listening and tells us now that your righteousness must surpass, this is Matthew 5.20, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were very good at following the letter of the law, that their actions seemed to resemble what the law said, but they did not understand the heart, the intent of God's law, and their hearts were corrupt. As we keep working in this passage, we will see that Jesus is commanding his followers to have hearts and actions that match one another, and vice versa, that our, our hearts would match our actions and our actions would match our hearts, that there would be whole person righteousness for the followers of Jesus so that we might reflect what our God is like in the world. So how is Jesus deepening their idea of mercy here where he says, you have heard it was said, eye for eye, he goes on to give them four examples of what the merciful response looks like from the person who has a heart changed by God's mercy. Let's look at verses 39 through 42 again. They say this, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Almost all these examples involve an individual doing some sort of act of injustice or wrong to another. 
You could even imagine probably as you read this yourself being on the receiving end of the, the lawsuit or the slap or, or the walking the extra mile. And Jesus is saying the merciful response here. And not only that, but to even let the injustice increase. To not only receive the first slap, but to then turn your other cheek to receive a second. To not only give your tunic, but to also offer your cloak. To not only go the one mile, but to go the second instead. To let the injustice increase as almost as if to say that person as they offer the cheek or the tunic saying, will you go through with this? Will you do evil upon evil? Will you do wrong upon wrong? I was thinking about in, in movies or books or, or TV shows, how for characters often there's that moment of what have I done? Where something that they never thought they were capable of, all of a sudden they're looking at their actions and their evil has been exposed. I'm kind of a dork when it comes to Disney stuff. And the first thing I thought of was Wreck-It Ralph when he this sounds so dumb. When he breaks the cookie that has like the first place prize that his friend won. And then all of a sudden, as he's done this, she runs off crying. He's like, I'm a monster. What have I done? Not only do we see that when evil is exposed in us, that that happens in books and movies and in TV shows. But I have had those moments in my life where I've done things that I never thought I was capable of that I just thought that was those other really bad people that, that could do those things. Or even I haven't done them outwardly, but inwardly I've thought them in my heart. Those moments where you shake your head of, why did I just have that thought? How is that possible? How is that capable in me? Here, this is an altogether different kind of mercy that Jesus is describing that would allow, the individual would allow themselves to receive the hurt upon hurt so that evil might be exposed in the other with hopes that they would come to a place of repentance. They would have the, what have I done? How am I capable of, capable of this? And that it would lead them to repenting before God, knowing that there is nothing good that exists within me. Now, let me be clear, though, that while Jesus here is giving specific illustrations of, of the, the lawsuit or striking of the cheek or, or going the extra mile, um, this idea of mercy is not limited to just these examples. Because otherwise, a lot of us would be off the hook for showing this kind of mercy. Because a lot of these were cultural illustrations that Jesus used to ultimately bring to light this idea of mercy. Because if you're here, you might be thinking, well, good, Jesus, Jesus talked about these things, but he didn't talk about being merciful on Facebook, so I'm good to go. Or he didn't talk about being merciful to my mother-in-law, which mother-in-laws get a bad rap. I love my mother-in-law. She's here today, um, right? He, he's, he's not just talking about like only in these specific situations be merciful, but it's supposed to be whole person mercy in all instances and circumstances in life. But you also may, might be thinking, wait, aren't there injustices that the Christian should stand up to, 
that they shouldn't turn their cheek, that they should go against it. And yes, actually, if we read scripture, like God makes that abundantly clear that we are to love truth, that we are to love justice. But let me read this quote from Jonathan Pennington, who uh, both Greg and Matt have referenced his commentary multiple times throughout our series, where he, he, I think, attempts to answer this question. He says this about, are there instances where we shouldn't just turn the other cheek in light of injustice? It is important to note at this point that as with all ethical teaching, the practical outworking of these principles, even these specific illustrations of cheek turning, coat giving, and mile walking require localized wisdom. Or another way he says it later is there are wise exceptions. And then later he goes on. The command to turn the other cheek does not apply to the situation of rescuing a child from abuse, nor does the example of giving to those who ask require me to hand over the keys to my car to the homeless man who approaches me. This kind of literalistic or literal interpretation not only misses the point, but also misunderstands the nature of the ethical teaching. It gives a vision of virtue, of how to be in the world, that accords with God's righteousness. But the working out of this in the individual's life is inevitably localized. This is wisdom. That's a long quote and a lot going on there. But ultimately, what Jesus is getting at and what Jonathan Pennington is illustrating here is that in carrying out this kind of mercy, we need to have, um, we, we need to have discernment. We need to have wisdom for how to and when to embrace non-retaliation when it comes to personal injustices, when someone has wronged you. There may be times where there are injustices in our lives that we are far too comfortable with, that it is all we have ever known to be treated this way or talked to like that, and that we shouldn't be as comfortable with those injustices as we are. What Jesus is getting at here is there are also injustices that we are very uncomfortable with that really rock us and we don't want them to happen to us. And so we continually re retaliate. And he's saying, instead, offer mercy. Instead, let the injustice continue. And this morning, I don't have time to go through every uh, situation or circumstance that we may face in this life to say, well, in this one, this is what mercy looks like, or in this one, yeah, probably don't be in that situation and offer the other cheek. But what this causes us to do is to seek the help of scriptures, to seek the help of God's Holy Spirit, the counselor whom he has given his people, and to seek the counsel of the church, to seek wise counsel from our brothers and sisters in the circumstances and situations where we have been wronged and have faced um, injustice in our lives, and to ask what do I do? What do you think is the right response for how I am to respond to this person? Instead of just assuming that we know in our flesh what is best. As I get older, I re and I'm, not, I'm 30, which feels old to me, and I know you'll laugh. Um, I just realize how little injustice has actually been done to me. There are things when I was 20 when I was 17, when I was 25, that felt like really big wrongs done to me. But as I get older, I realize that's not really the case. 
And I know that that's not actually true for a lot of you out there, that there are some of you in this room or watching at home that have been wronged in some really terrible ways. And even as we expand outside of this room, thinking about the world and the injustice, that the, the evil that's in the world, we can see there is great wrongs that have been done. What God has taught me through the times where I have been wronged and what he continues to teach me is this, is that he will make it right. Whether it is in this life or in eternity, God will make it right. He will either bring those people to a place of repentance or justice in this life, and he will definitely bring them to a place of justice in the next. But judgment belongs to our God and our God alone. It is not for God's people to exact judgment on others, but instead to trust our God to be the one who makes it right. We also worship a God and follow a Savior who showed us the ultimate demonstration of mercy. Not only does Jesus depict this mercy with his words, but he also does with his life as he makes his way to the cross, as he is struck on the cheek over and over again, as he gives his clothes, as his clothes are stripped from his back and as he's exposed naked on the cross and carries his cross to the place to where he would be crucified. And in all this, Jesus did not retaliate. He was silent. Even though he was innocent, he instead received injustice upon injustice so that you and I might look at him on the cross and say, what a wonderful savior. That the just death that my sin, that our sin deserves, Jesus instead offered mercy and died in our place. The evil of sin is exposed in Jesus' death so that we might all say, what have I done? But in his mercy, he calls us to repent, to turn from our sin and turn to the one who saves. This is our example of what it means to be merciful as God's people. Let's go on to the next part of our passage in Matthew 43, or Matthew 5, 43. Jesus goes on and says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Not even, do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the first illustration of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, there was a misunderstanding of the, the heart, the intent of God's law. And that exists here, but, but more than that, it is um, that Jesus is referencing for God's law in Leviticus 19, starting at verse 17. This is what God says. Do not hate your brother in your heart. 
Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The command here clearly is to love your neighbor, but nowhere does it say to hate anyone. It actually says the opposite. Do not hate your brother. You will never find a command in the Old Testament where God is commanding people to hate. But then how did this get added? How did this, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, end up that Jesus is referencing this. Where, where did God's people go wrong? Uh, I don't know if we know this for certain, but Jonathan Pennington noted in this commentary that this probably came about, this addition, from either the Pharisees, the religious leaders, or God's people as a whole, taking other scriptures out of context where the biblical author is describing their hate for their enemy or hate for God's enemy or hate for sin, but God did not intend it for, to be prescribed for us to do the same as then. Whereas in the Psalms, we see this where they're saying, I hate my enemy and all of that. It's describing the state of man's heart, but God in no way is saying, and yes, just like this person said, do this too. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. I haven't, like I said, lived a very long time, but never in my lifetime have I seen in the last couple years uh, a season where people are so quick to make others out to be their enemy. That based off one post, based off something that happened in their past years ago, based off thinking differently than them, we are quick to cancel people or to roast people on Twitter or to want nothing to do with someone anymore because of something that they've said or their ideas about the election or their ideas about COVID and that we've put people in boxes and made them out to be our enemies. Jesus's idea of an enemy here is those who are persecuting God's people for their faith and their righteousness. Back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And blessed are you who are persecuted because of me. And even in this section here, we see to love your enemy and pray for those persecuting you. That there is this idea of the enemy really being the enemy of faith or the enemy of God. The enemy that Jesus is referring to here isn't just the person who cut you off when you were driving, who posted something that you didn't like on social media, who isn't in your preferred political party, or who doesn't think like you. Those are not our enemies. But what about those who have deeply hurt you, who were supposed to love you, or that you trusted and have wronged you in a huge way? but it wasn't necessarily connected to your faith or your belief. What about them? Those who have truly felt like an enemy, is not, Jesus not talking about them then? 
I think that the application of this passage expands and extends itself to those circumstances and situations as well. Because what we see Jesus doing here is he says, um, he says that we are to love our neighbor and we are to love our en- enemy. The ultimate goal is to love all, whether they have wronged you or not. Jesus here is expanding our idea of who our neighbor is, that we are actually supposed to start seeing our enemies like we see our neighbors and to respond to them with love. God, in this passage, it says, God causes the sun to rise, the rain to fall on all of his creation. God is constantly giving undeserved love and mercy to all. And before that, too, in verses, or after that, in verses 46 and 47, Jesus is getting at really attacking our righteousness or pinpointing our righteousness, our right living, that we are no better than the world or no different than the world if we just love and greet those that are easy for us to love, easy for us to get along with. If we are to be the light of the world, we, our love is to look entirely different than the dark. Light and dark contrast. The love of a believer and follower of Jesus should really contrast that of those who do not follow him because our love is extended to all. Even those who have wronged us in huge ways, even those who have persecuted us for our faith. This is a hard teaching to accept. This is a hard teaching to receive, even though I think we love the idea of it to some degree. But we struggle to love the internet IT person when we've been on the phone with them for 45 minutes when we thought it was just going to be a five-minute conversation. Is that just me? No? And anyone else? Right? We struggle to do that, let alone the people who have desecrated our relationship with them due to the wrong and injustice that they have done to us. And if you are here or if you are watching and you are an internet IT person, we love you and we're sorry that we're not patient. This is a hard teaching to receive. And again, there is situational wisdom of how to love people. Not situational to love people, but how to love people who have harmed us. How to love the enemy that is persecuting. How to love our neighbor when they do something that annoys us or whatever the case may be. We need discernment through God's word, his spirit, and through the guidance of other brothers and sisters in our church to help us apply this correctly in different circumstances in our lives. If there's a kid who comes to youth group on a Wednesday and does something wrong on on, on a given night, and they've been attending youth group for five years— versus a kid who comes for their first time that night and they also do something wrong, my goal, my response to both of them should be to love them. But it will look different based off the kid who's gone for five years in my relationship with them and then the kid who's there and showed up for the first time. The same virtue is love. How it is applied and how it is carried out with wisdom looks different in those different situations. The same goes with the different people in our lives as well. G. 
Jesus concludes this section of the sermon with a great summary statement of what he is both helping us to see and commanding us to do. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this isn't just a summary statement of of the the passage we've covered this morning, but really for the first section of, of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a great summary statement of Jesus encompassing what he's been trying to teach us, what he's been trying to get across this whole time. That we are to be like our Father. We are to show the world whose family we belong to. In our passage this morning, Jesus says, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Show the world whose family you belong to and who your Father is. It's weird, though, when we see the word perfect, be perfect. Our culture has really negative connotation with the word perfect or, or really wrong views with the word perfect. The word that Jesus is using here, the Greek word is teleos, which means whole or complete. That we are to be whole as our heavenly father is whole. Which makes a ton of sense because what Jesus has been teaching is that following God's law, living into the story that we've received from God, is not just about our external actions and what we do. But first and foremost, it's about an inward devotion to our God that then dictates, that informs, and and hopefully transforms our external actions so that we live wholly devoted to God, both inwardly in our hearts and outwardly as we put into practice what he says is good. What he says truly will cause us to flourish and to be the light of the world. The Pharisees focused only on the external, trying to have all their ducks in a row and following the law to to the letter, but they missed the heart. They totally missed the heart. Jesus describes them at one point as whitewashed tombs. That on the outside, everything looks real pretty, but on the inside, you are still dead. Thankfully, our God is in the business of changing hearts so that we can put into practice what he says is good, is whole, is true, is right. A great question to ask ourselves in response to this is where am I not whole? Where does my heart not match my actions? Where do my actions not match my heart? Where am I outwardly showing, oh, look at how I'm following God this way, but inwardly, My heart is not devoted in that same way. Where am I devoted inwardly, but I'm too afraid to show it outwardly? We need to resist the temptation to fake it, to think that in this space, or when we're around other believers or or coworkers, who it might be to put out there a righteousness that doesn't reflect what's actually going on in our hearts, because ultimately we cannot fake it with our God. And we will stand before him fully unclothed with all of our fake righteousness. And we will stand before him how he sees us. And we will stand account for how we have lived. In a series years ago here at Harvest, we were working through the gospel. 
and the gospel message. And something that Pastor Gary said, I'll never forget during that series. He said, the believer says in their heart, I own the gospel and the gospel owns me. The gospel is that Jesus subjected himself to sinful people, to our sin. And in Luke 23, 34, Jesus even says as he's hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing, that Jesus is loving and praying for his persecutors, his his enemies, as they are in the process of killing him. That Jesus has not dealt, that God has not dealt with our sin as it deserves, but instead mercifully has granted us access to the Father's love. That where we should have received wrath, when we have trusted in him, instead we receive mercy and love. Is this the story that owns you? Is this the story that you own? Is this the story that you run all your decisions and actions and circumstances through? That God has been merciful, loving, and gracious to you. And out of that, it transforms and changes what we live for and how we live. If no, today is a great way to receive, today is a great day to receive this story, to own this story and recognize this is the story that God created you for. If hiding your sin or hiding how big of a deal sin is has been the reason that has kept you from receiving the truth of this gospel, today is a great day to recognize what have I done as we look at our Savior on the cross. How is it that my sin put Jesus there? How was I, how was I uh, able to bring this about and to recognize that we need to be saved by the mercy and love of God? If you're here and you would say yes to that question, that yes, the gospel owns me and I own the gospel, is your response to enemies and wrongs done to you Does it reflect the story that you've received? Or are you telling a story that's the story of the world? Have we been discipled too much by the world in how to respond to injustices and to enemies? Would we instead be transformed by the gospel? And a great place to start is to pray like our our Jesus did and to forgive. If God in his power had the ability to forgive us for our sin, he has the power to help us to forgive others who have wronged us, even for the most atrocious and wrong injustices.